to go to Sunday school. If you have a Bible with me, please turn to the book of Revelation as we begin our series, um, our new series this afternoon, uh, looking at Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 9. Um, we are going to be in an eight-week series looking at the first three chapters of Revelation If you don't have your Bible, of course, it's up here on uh, the PowerPoint as well as in your sermon insert. Please hear now the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying... Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we need your help. We need your help in all of life, in every circumstance, for every decision. We need your help even as we come to your word because apart from your spirit's illumination, apart from the gift of opening up our eyes, of purifying our hearts to see what's in your word, this would be unreasonable, unsensible, ununderstandable to us. But now, as you have given to us your spirit, would you speak clearly through me, speak clearly to my friends here, that as we hear your word, we would receive its instruction, not as a manual, but as good news. And in this hour... Help us feel the weight of knowing what it means to sit in your presence, to hear your voice, to commune in fellowship with God, our maker. So Lord, be with us this hour. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, the next eight weeks, we are in a series in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation uh, that I've entitled uh, The Seven, A Word to God's Churches Then and Now. 
You see, at the beginning of this book, the Apostle John is on an island called Patmos, and there he receives a vision from the Lord, and he proceeds to record this message, these messages to seven churches in Asia Minor. And here's the thing, though. As we read these letters, what we soon begin to realize is that although these letters were written to the churches then and there, they still apply to us, the churches here and now. So we, Christ Church in the 21st century, are also instructed and encouraged and warned and challenged by these same words. Now, before I begin, I want to orient us around the nature of this book a little bit, uh, particularly how we are to approach it. Uh, Now, because we are not looking at the entirety of the book of Revelation, some of the typical symbols and images and numbers that uh, we're used to being so mystified by, we're not going to get to. Yet, nonetheless, uh, Dr. Vern Poitras, who uh, is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, wrote a short commentary on Revelation, and he said this, which I find very helpful. He writes, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, long for the final victory. And then, in fact, he goes on to tell this true story about a group of seminarians. He just celebrated, by the way, his 40th year teaching at Westminster. So he's seen a lot of seminarians come through. And he tells the story of a group of seminarians who were playing basketball in a local gym. And out of the corner of their eye, they saw a janitor reading a book. And so after the game ended, they went over to him and they asked him what he was reading. And he said that he was reading the Bible. And they were intrigued. And they said, well, what book? And he said, Revelation. Now, the students thought they would help this uninformed, non-seminary trained man, you know, help him understand what he was reading. So they asked him, do you have any questions for us? We'd be more than happy to help you make sense of what you're reading. And janitor politely said, no, thanks. I think I understand it just fine. The guys were shocked. They didn't believe him because, after all, they really didn't understand it themselves. So they said, you do? Well, then tell us, what does it mean? And the man looked up at them and said, well, it seems that Jesus is going to win. Jesus is going to win. Now, on one hand, you can say that's naïve. On the other hand, you can say that this is brilliant, that this is perceptive. Because in one sense, that's exactly what the book of Revelation is about. Jesus is going to win. Now, this is important for us to know because when we ask the basic questions, where is history headed? Where is the cosmos and God's entire plan of redemption going? To what focal point is God driving the universe from when he first created to the final and last day. And the book of Revelation tells us that the answer is this. God is driving human history. He is driving the drama of the cosmos toward the complete and final victory of Jesus Christ over sin, death, and Satan. And so knowing that end, what does that mean for us, the church, If that's how the story ends, then how should the church here and now in 2017, this congregation, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Chalfont, Pennsylvania, how do we now conduct ourselves? How are we called to live and minister and love and encourage and worship and be the church in light of knowing 
that God is driving us to this final victory in Christ. It at least means that we listen to the words spoken to the churches. We follow his lead. We listen to his voice. We obey his commands. We rise up to his challenges, and we cling to his promises. Our passage this afternoon is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. And from it, I would like to consider this gospel truth. Jesus Christ is the ultimate assurance for every circumstance of life. Jesus Christ is the ultimate assurance for every circumstance of life. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to consider three things. We're going to look at the voice, the vision, and the victory. The voice from verses 9 to 11, the vision from verses 12 to 16, and the victory from verses 17 to 20. So let's get started by considering the first point, the voice. Let's look At verse 9, keep your Bible open or your sermon insert in front of you. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. Now, what is Patmos? Where is Patmos? Patmos, uh, historical records tell us, was a place that the emperor Domitian when he um, came up with dissidents or troublemakers in society, he would banish them and he would exile them into this island called Patmos. It was a small island, only about uh, 10 miles long, 5 miles wide. Very small island. And John says that he is here on this island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Meaning this, John is on the island because he's been banished, exiled for preaching the gospel for teaching about Jesus Christ. Now, at the time that Revelation is written, the Apostle John is most likely the only remaining apostle who is alive. In fact, myth has it, this is not in the Bible, but myth has it that Apostle John was captured and had a vat of boiling oil poured over him in order to kill him. Um, yet it only it melted his skin, uh, that he was in great pain and great agony, but by some miracle he didn't die. And so in anger he was thrown onto Patmos. And you think about that and you think about the time of the Bible. This is probably written about in AD 90 or so. Life for the followers of Jesus was not easy. And so John identifies himself with them. If you look at verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother. This super apostle, one of Jesus' inner three, he says, I'm your brother. And more than that, what? I am a partner with you in the tribulation or the suffering. I'm partnered with you guys in suffering for the sake of Christ. Living in obedience to Jesus and his commands does not lead to a life of health, wealth, and blessing, but suffering for the sake of Christ's name. Now, why is this the case? If you listen, John says, I am your brother, I am a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Meaning that Christians are partners in the kingdom of God. We are not part of the kingdom of the world, but part of the kingdom of God. And this means that we await for the fullness of God's kingdom to come one day. But in the meantime, we live in the tension of the kingdom of the world. We are in conflict with the kingdom of the world because Christians live by different principles. We live for a different purpose. We live under the reign and rule of a different king. 
So in the meanwhile, as John is on the island of Patmos and he is waiting, it says here that he is exercising patient endurance, awaiting the return of Jesus. Now, makes me wonder this. How many of you here are enduring hardship on account of the word of God? How many of you in your lives every day are patiently enduring suffering for the testimony of Christ? Upon reflection, I believe the reality is that for most Christians, your life is comfortable, it is complacent, it is compromising. So very few of us feel like we're living on Patmos. For a lot of us, it feels like we're living in paradise. There's nothing uncomfortable about our faith when it is private and not public, when it is personal and not professed. But here John is, the last remaining apostle, banished to Patmos in the last years of his life, away from all the people he knew and he loved, away from his church brothers and sisters, it says here that he is on the Lord's Day. That is the first occurrence of the Lord's Day in the Bible. It refers to Sunday worship. That he is praying and he is seeking God by himself. And that's when the Lord chooses to visit him. So verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, in the Spirit means that John was in a state uh, above normal sensory experiences. Basically, John is taken up into a spiritual trance given a spiritual vision. What happens? Verse 10 says, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John is cut off from his community. He is suffering for the sake of Jesus. He is living out his last days alone. He is not living in triumph as the great apostle he is and as he deserved, but he is living in tribulation. And in the midst of that, Jesus visits John. In the midst of that, Jesus comes to John And he speaks, and John hears his voice. Now imagine with me what this meant for John. Alone, afraid, ending his days in this suffering, this season of suffering. John has done so much for Jesus, yet he's looking at his life and he's saying, Really, Jesus, this is the best you can do for me? I'm on this island alone, away from everybody I know and love. This is how I'm going to end my race. And Jesus speaks to him in a voice, and it's, it's as if he says to him, no, no, John, I'm with you. I have not left you. I'm not done with you. Even on this island, even away from everybody you know and love, you are not forgotten. You are not abandoned. I'm not done with you yet. I have one more mission for you. And then Jesus commissioned John in verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, we're not going to get into that because that's what the next seven weeks together are. But here's what I want to focus on. In the loneliest and darkest and most hopeless circumstances, God speaks to his people and he comforts them with his voice if we seek him out. Now, none of us here, we may not hear God audibly like John did, but when we seek him in opening up his word, we all hear God speaking to us. You see, the Bible is not just a record of God's word spoken to his people in the past, but the Bible is God speaking to his people presently as we open it to hear his voice. 
Yeah, you may not be on an island called Patmos. You may not be suffering like this for the sake of his name. And nonetheless, here this afternoon, are any of you in need of hearing from God? Are any of you in need of receiving the comfort and the assurance that is found in his voice? Parents, just as when your kid wakes up from a nightmare, screaming, disoriented, and the only thing that will calm them down is to hear your soothing voice. Are you searching out to hear the voice of God, your Father? You know, in fact, some of you in here, maybe you do. Maybe you need to hear the voice because you're living in the tension where you're trying to live for the kingdom, but you realize that you are living in the kingdom of this world. Some of you are patiently enduring. You're fighting the good fight. You're trying to press on in faith, but you feel worn down. You feel beaten up in your Christian walk. And some of you are feeling isolated in your faith. You feel alone and afraid. Maybe you feel that you have no purpose or you feel lost, confused, forgotten about. And you need his voice to settle you and to give you direction. Maybe for some of you, triumph does not mark your life, but tribulation. It's not always success, but your life is about suffering. Some of you are trying to advance, but you're always met with adversity. And in the midst of these situations, where are you looking? To whose voice are you listening? Some of you may be on your own kind of Patmos, where you're the only Christian in your family. You're trying to live for Christ. You're trying to follow the king, but you are met with rejection or hostility. Whatever circumstance you're in, are you finding your assurance and your comfort in the voice of God who speaks to you through his scriptures? You know, the question is never, never does Jesus speak to you? The question is always, are you listening to him? Are you hearing his voice in the word? This is how God draws near to you, through word and spirit. You hear his voice. The second assurance we see is the vision. John also receives a vision from Jesus, and what he sees is absolutely terrifying. Now look with me at verse 17. It says that after he sees his great vision, he says, When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, a question that I have for you here is this. How do you envision Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? I say the name Jesus, and what do you think of? What comes to mind? You know, after this uh, past retreat, this past weekend, uh, after everyone left, I knew some of you went to go eat. Uh, my parents live only about 45 minutes away, so I went to visit them. And uh, I was in their home, and in their home, they have this picture of, of Jesus, uh, a very famous portrait of Jesus. He has he's long brown hair and perfect complexion. Uh, I call it the high school yearbook photo of Jesus. He's just kind of looking, uh, you know, just very nice. And you, I'm sure many of you have seen it. If you, if you see it, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, my mom and I were upstairs, and I commented to her, um, you know, just trying to teach her something. I said, uh, Mom, you know, Jesus, historically, he, he probably didn't look like this. And, and my point was, you know, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. He wasn't Caucasian, you know. Um, and she responded in a really interesting way. Um, she looked at me. She said, yeah, you're right. I was like, really? And she goes, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I don't think Jesus looks so much like a woman. <laughs> 
don't think Jesus looks so much like a woman. That's not why I was commenting. That's not what I wanted to say. But her answer was a great observation. Because the portraits and the images we have of Jesus in our minds are often this kind of subdued, calm, peaceful, serene Jesus. It's almost an effeminate picture of him. But you get to the vision that John sees, and your perspective on Jesus must change. Your perspective on Jesus must be confronted. Now, listen to what it says in verse 12. And we're just going to work our way down from verse 12 to verse 17. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. It says here that Jesus is among seven golden lampstands. What does that mean? Well, if you go to verse 20, we're told that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. So Jesus among seven lampstands symbolizes that his, he is exercising a headship over the churches. That Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, who is Jesus? As the head of the church, what does that mean? That means all of the churches throughout the world and throughout history, throughout space and throughout time, all of the churches, the people of God, are following his lead and they are submitting to his rule. Jesus Christ rules his people as he rules the churches. Then the Bible says that John says he, he was like a son of man, like a son of man. And this description comes straight from the book of Daniel, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, in the book of Daniel, the son of man is a figure in whom, to whom all of the kingdoms and all of the dominion of the earth is given to him. In the book of Daniel, it says that this son of man rules and reigns, that his rule is everlasting. It says that his kingdom will never be destroyed. It says all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. And so the picture we see of Jesus, the vision we get, is not only that he's the head and the ruler of the church, but that he is the head, the king, the ruler of the world. His glory, his dominion, his kingdom have no end. And although he is rebelled against time and time again, although he is challenged for his authority by angels and by men, he will never be dethroned and his scepter will never leave his hand. This is who he is. And so following this description, there is... um, a bunch of other, of other description. I'm not going to go into where it corresponds to Daniel 7 and 10. But if you're interested, take the book of Revelation. Take Revelation chapter 1, verses um, 12 to 16. And then go to Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel 10 and see the parallels. And what we begin to see is this, that the picture of Jesus here in Revelation 1 is the fulfillment of the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. Now, why is that important? Because it's, this is showing us, this is commending to us a vision of Jesus that is not like um, the one that so often dominates and preoccupies our mind, a Jesus who is uh, a pushover, a Jesus who was puny, a Jesus who was powerless. No, no, it shows us a Jesus that is glorious and mighty. Verse 13 continues, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. These are the garments that the priests wore, meaning that Jesus stands as the high priest, the only person through whom you have access to God. Jesus here, he's standing as the mediator between the holy God and sinful man. And Jesus, as the high priest, is the only bridge between the two. It's the only way. He's the only way the chasm can be crossed between sinful humanity and holy divinity. 
Jesus can only do this because of verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. No, this is not an image of Jesus being old. No, not at all. The whiteness of his hair, the white wool, like snow, is a symbol of his absolute purity and holiness. He is spotless and he is without blemish, like an evening snowfall, because he was a man who knew no sin. In him was no error, no shortage, no fault, nothing lacking. He was in the world, yet he was unstained from the world. And against his perfect purity, our smallest sins and our slightest offenses stand out egregiously. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes are penetrating and blazing like a hot furnace. There is none that can withstand his holy stare. He sees through all of your pretense. He sees through all of your cover-ups. He sees through all of your asks. asks. He sees through all of your masks. He looks into your heart. He looks into your thoughts. He sees behind your emotions. He goes underneath the foundations of your desires. None can hide from him, and nothing can be hidden from him which means that in his presence no injustice can be done that he does not see and no righteousness is done that he does not observe. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This means his feet are steadfast and unwavering. It's not like clay that can crumble and break apart. It's not like iron that is subject to decay and rust. He is firm and he is immovable. That he, work, he walks the earth in power. He treads over his enemies. With each step, he subdues nations and rulers. And he stands to judge in perfect and faithful righteousness. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. His voice is mighty, and at it, the world trembles. There is no power and authority in the voice that spoke the universe into existence and breathed into dust to form man. Even his whisper sounds like the current of rapid streams and the roar of mighty waters. His words both bring high and they bring low. They build up and they tear down. They can take life and they can give life. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Why seven stars? Well, verse 20 tells us the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Jesus holding seven stars in his hands means Jesus is holding the angels in his right hand. It signifies that his authority is not only over the churches here on earth, but also over the majestic angels in heaven. That his rule extends from earth to heaven. It has no boundaries. He has no limits. From earthly to heavenly, physical to spiritual, temporal to eternal, his authority is asserted over all things. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The sword was used as an instrument of judgment and justice. As Jesus speaks, he does so with the power to justify and to judge. For when Jesus speaks, those who believe in him, the sword will pierce and convict and bring life. But those who reject him, the sword will cut them down in swift and righteous judgment. That the sword that comes from his mouth has the power both to heal and to mend or to strike and to kill. And lastly, 
and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. The radiance of his glory is so bright that to behold his face is to behold the brilliance of the sun, brighter and more powerful than any solar eclipse. There are no glasses that can protect you from him. The face of Jesus Christ not only blinds those who look upon him with unmediated eyes, but as Yahweh speaks to Moses in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Such is the radiance and the glory, and the splendor, and the beauty of the face of Jesus Christ. And you pause, and you sit back, and you go, what a vision. What a vision of Jesus Christ. And so John rightly falls at his feet as though dead. And in one sense, this is the most appropriate response to this kind of king. Now think about this. Who was John? John was one of Jesus' inner three disciples. He walked with him, lived with him for three whole years. And yet even John never saw Jesus like this before. He saw a glimpse of it in the transfiguration, but nothing like this. This vision was a brand new revelation. So you know what that teaches us? If John, who walked with Jesus, never saw Jesus like this before, then that, what that means to us is this. There are depths to understanding Christ. There are depths to seeing Christ for who he truly is that will take eternity to grasp. All of us who are church, we come and we say, we know who Jesus is. You may think you have understanding, but until your vision of Jesus matches, looks like, resembles anything like that here in this book, you do not truly know him as he is. And through this vision, it becomes very clear. Jesus is nobody's homeboy. Jesus is nobody's buddy. Jesus is not a mere man. He is the king. Powerful and mighty, authoritative and wise, holy and pure, just and righteous, glorious and brilliant, exercising authority in heaven and on earth, standing between God and man, ruling and reigning his church, not as a slain lamb, but as a conquering lion. Does your view, your vision, your image of Jesus look like this. Yes, Jesus came as a shepherd. He came as a humble servant. He came as an infant born in a manger. He died a poor, humble death, stripped of all his garments. Yes, he came like that. But right now, at this very moment, He sits at the right hand of God the Father, holding the stars in his hands. He stands in the midst of his churches. He stands right here in the midst of us at Cornerstone as our groom, our protector, our sustainer, and our king. Do we have a vision of Jesus like this? 
You and I don't need Jesus made in our image. We need a Jesus bigger than our imaginations, more powerful than we could ever dream, who rules and reigns in heaven over you and me, over our families, over our church, over the world, over the cosmos. This is the Jesus who fights for you, not the Jesus who fights against you or the Jesus who fights with you. This is the Jesus revealed in the scriptures, not only in the New Testament, but revealed even in the old as he fulfills the visions and the prophecies. And so John, upon seeing Jesus like he's never seen him before, he falls down as though dead. Verse 17 says, but he laid his right hand on me. Jesus, who holds the seven angels in his hands, in the palm of his hands, he lays his hand on you, not to accuse you, not to strike you down, not to toss you out, but to comfort you. And he does so with assurance and with grace. While John is in the midst of Patmos, So for our lives, in the moments of uncertainty, in seasons of valleys and deserts, in times of fear and unknown futures, we need to have this kind of vision of Jesus. Not that powerless Jesus who who walks with us because that's all he can do. Not a uh, pushover Jesus who, who got himself killed because he had no backbone. Not a puny Jesus who can only listen to your prayers because he can't actually answer them. No, no, not at all. The Jesus you need to have is a Revelation chapter 1 Jesus who has all the power and authority of heaven and on earth. And with that, He places his hand on you and he says, fear not, fear not. This kind of vision of Jesus is one that gives us assurance in all of life's circumstances. Fear not. And thirdly, we see the victory. Jesus places his hand on John and he says in verses 17 and 18, he says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is, in essence, saying this. Do not be afraid of me. You have no reason to be afraid of me because I am on your side. I am fighting for you. Now, why is this encouraging? I imagine it's like this. You're playing basketball, and someone who is tall and fast and strong and big comes to play, and your response is what? What? This guy? He's not allowed to play with us. That's unfair. And then that guy says, I'll play on your team. And you go, okay, let's start. (laughs) Why? Because you do not want a man like that against you. You want him for you. This Jesus, the Jesus in whom we just shared this great vision, he comes to you. He says, fear not. I am with you. Why? Because I died. Now, wait up. What does that mean? Why is that encouraging? We just got the vision of Jesus Christ. He is the almighty God. He is the ancient of days. He is the awe-striking king of the universe. And we're told that this God, he died? Why in the world would God have to die? And the answer to that question is the very reason why each one of you in this room can have full assurance in Jesus' victory. 
You see, because the gospel says this, that the creator God wrote himself into your story. He entered into history. He came into the world in order to battle the enemy of sin in our place because you and I were powerless to do so. You see, sin is the reason that the world is broken. Sin disrupts our relationships with God. Sin invades our hearts and causes us to rebel against him and to have strife and division among one another. Sin also pervades our body. It corrupts our physical body and subjects us to death, decay, and disease. Evil enemies who have no place, who do not belong in this world. Sin is the great enemy, yet because we were powerless to defeat sin... Because we were rendered absolutely of no ability to even put up a fight. The one who calls himself the first and the last. The one who calls himself Alpha and Omega. The one who calls himself the beginning and the end. The infinite one becomes finite. The eternal one becomes limited. And he enters this world that for you and for me, he went to the cross to defeat that last and great enemy sin. He conquered him. And though he died, he was laid in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again from that in a conquering victory and he says what behold i am alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and hades it is through his victorious death and his victorious resurrection that he takes away death's sting He defeats Satan's kingdom. He frees us from sin's shame. So now everyone who looks to him, who looks to that victory, has the great assurance that this Jesus is not against you. He is for you. Do you know what this means for your life? It means you can be on Patmos. It means you can be in prison. It means you can face persecution. It means you can be under life's greatest pressures. It means you can feel the absence of his presence. And yet in every circumstance, you can know he is with you. You see, the gospel does not say that hope in Christ saves you from suffering says hope in Christ sustains you in suffering. The gospel never promises you that it will protect you from persecution, only that it will preserve you in it. Like Apostle John, none of us here want to be on Patmos, but we may be in a type of Patmos. You may be there now, and you may be there for a while. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel turns every circumstance and every situation and every season that feels like a Patmos, the gospel turns that into a place of vision. Wherever God in his sovereign will has you, in a tough marriage, in a difficult parenting situation, in a broken relationship, in a financial difficult situation, in a doctor's office, in a hospital bed, that God can use that as a place of vision. 
Maybe you're trying to navigate a worldly workplace or a peer pressure-driven classroom. You're trying to find your way through spiritually dark and depressing places. You're fighting a lonely season. You're feeling inadequate in an area that needs decision. You're grasping for certainty in an unknown future. God can use that as a place of vision. And it happens when we pay attention to these three simple things. First, desire to hear God's voice in his word. Let that speak louder and clearer into your life than the tempting voice of the world. And if not the tempting voice of the world, the timid, trembling voice of yourself that tells you you're alone. You can't do this. God hates you. Your sin has driven you away from its favor. No, no, no. Let the voice of God speak more clear. Second, seek to have a vision of Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible, not a Jesus of your own imagination. Get to know him in all of his attributes and his actions for you. He is the pre-existent son of God. He is the humble savior kin. He is the exalted son of man. Have a correct vision of Jesus. And third, preach the good news of Christ's victory to yourself. Remind yourself daily of all he has done for you through his death and resurrection. You need that gospel to minister to yourself and to your soul every day and to rehearse its truth in your life continually. Friends, do you know how to experience assurance in all of life's circumstances? You listen to his voice. You have a true vision of who he is. And you preach the victory of the cross to yourself. And then your Patmos becomes a place of vision. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend here on the Lord's Day. We are very much unlike John. We are not persecuted often for our faith. And I received the good word from the Lord. Now may the grace of our Lord and victorious King, Jesus, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may the ministry of the triune God minister to God's people both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear?